Hi, this is John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the National Security This Week podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe so you'll receive a new edition of the podcast every week. Please leave us a review as well and tell others about us. And please contact us with any feedback or opinions you might have by emailing nstw at kymnradio.net. We hope you find the show informative and interesting. Thanks again. National Security This Week, a weekly look at American national security issues. And now, your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, October 27th, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Every Wednesday at 9 a.m., we get together here on KYMN Radio to discuss national security. And we're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore challenges in national security. If you've been a regular listener to National Security This Week, then you know I'm a retired intelligence officer in the U.S. Navy. I thoroughly enjoyed my career, and during that career, I actually served twice in assignments with the Defense Intelligence Agency, or DIA. Today, we're going to take a deep look at the agencies that comprise the U.S. intelligence community, and specifically, we're going to explore DIA. We'll also take a look at some of the bigger strategic challenges facing America. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, who served as the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency from 2017 until October of 2020, at which point he retired from a very long and distinguished career in the U.S. Army. Prior to the assignment at DIA, Lieutenant General Ashley served as U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff, G2, where he was the senior advisor to the Secretary of the Army and the Army Chief of Staff for all aspects of intelligence, counterintelligence, and security. Lieutenant General Ashley is a career Army military intelligence officer with deployments to Operation Joint Forge in Bosnia-Herzegovina, Operation Iraqi Freedom in Iraq, and Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan. He has commanded at the company, battalion, squadron, and brigade levels with combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan as a squadron, brigade, commander, and J-2. His command tours include the 206th Military Intelligence Battalion out of Fort Gordon, Georgia, the Intelligence Squadron for the Office of Military Support in Washington, D.C., and the 525th Battlefield Surveillance Brigade with the 18th Airborne Corps. Other key assignments include the Director of Intelligence for the Joint Special Operations Command. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about them uh, later. The Director of Intelligence for the United States Central Command. The Deputy Chief of Staff for uh, Intelligence... uh, uh, Deputy Chief of Staff for Intelligence for International Security Assistance Force and Director of Intelligence for U.S. Forces in Afghanistan, and the Commanding General uh, for the United States Army Intelligence Center of Excellence and Fort Huachuca in Arizona. Lieutenant General Ashley has a Bachelor of Arts degree in Political Science from Appalachian State University, a Master's degree in Strategic Intelligence from the National Intelligence University, and a Master's degree in Strategic Studies from the U.S. Army War College. Lieutenant General Ashley has also earned the U.S. Army Parachutist Badge, the Army Aviation Crew Member Badge, and the Australian Parachutist Badge. Uh, And uh, Lieutenant General Ashley, welcome to National Security This Week. Hey, John, thanks. Uh, It's great to be with you. And after the bio introduction, uh, hopefully we still have time to have a conversation. (laughs) We've got plenty of time, sir. We've got plenty of time. So where are you at this morning? I am in Wake Forest, North Carolina. Um, You know, I'm originally from North Carolina and in it's just outside of Raleigh. And, you know, after I raised my hand in 1984 and got commissioned, we knew all roads led back to North Carolina. So there was never a doubt that I was going to escape the beltway in my last assignment, and make my way back home. And uh, now that you are retired, what are you doing in, in your retirement? Um, consulting. We established uh, an LLC, Ashley Global Leadership and Strategy, and I'm actually consulting. I think the, it's probably about nine or 10 different companies right now. Wow. Um, so I am staying busy, but the good thing is um, it, it's a, an opportunity for me to share, you know, the last 36 and a half years of experience. Uh, it lets me look at some of the cutting edge technology that's out there and figure out how we get that uh, in the hands of those that need it. So it's it's pretty rewarding. Uh, so I'm enjoying it greatly. And I also get to sleep in, which is <laughs> which is not overrated. No, no, it is not. Uh, so, General Ashley, let's start our discussion today, uh, if we could, by uh, by diving into your career path a bit. Uh, I'm, I'm certain our listeners uh, would really like to know some of the amazing things you did during your time in the Army. 
that said, what was your path into becoming a military intelligence officer in the Army? I mean, did you choose that career path by choice? Uh, was intelligence your passion coming out of your commissioning program at Appalachian State? Uh, did you plan to stay in the Army for a career, or, or did you just sort of stumble into this long-term career that you've served in? Yeah, so uh, a series of questions. And as cliche as it sounds, <laughs> being a huge James Bond fan, you know, as I as I made my way into the RTC department, you know, that was, you know, we all think we're going to be in the next James Bond. Um, it's very different at the tactical level, but that really was um, kind of the hook that, that got me in uh, to, to do that. And, you know, I had a degree in political science, um, love military history. I'm from a military family. My brother was a 141 pilot in the Air Force. My dad was a soldier in the Korean Army. He was an airman in the Vietnam War. Um, excuse me, in the Korean War in Vietnam. And so there was this sense of service. I have an uncle that hit the beach at Normandy. And so I just, you know, the intelligence piece of that was so fascinating because it, you know, it allowed me to leverage my degree. Um, and as I learned more about it while I was at App State, you know, you just saw that the, the Intel team was kind of central to everything that was going on. So if you really want to be integral to what's happening every single day, and you know this from your time in the Navy, um, it's the operations and the intelligence guys. And so uh, that was exactly what I wanted. Um, fortunately, I finished high enough, you know, in my graduating class that I got my first choice because it's very competitive to get uh, intelligence. And, my, you know, my first assignment, I said, hey, I want to go be a platoon leader in the 82nd Airborne Division. I want to be an All-American at Fort Bragg. I got that. And, you know, your question about did you think about doing this for 36 and a half years? <laughs> Uh, no, what I thought about was this is really fun. I love being part of national security. I like getting up in the morning thinking about what am I going to do to make the nation safer? And I blinked in the first 20 years went by and I didn't even blink in the next 16 went by the first 20 are kind of interesting as you're growing up in the military, you're learning about it. But once you hit that 20 year mark, I have to admit it really flew by and you know, a big chunk of that was the last 20 years of war. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the intelligence profession in the U.S. Army? I, I've heard that uh, MI, or military intelligence, is the second largest officer designation. Is that, is that true after infantry? Yeah, I think we're either second or third. It's uh, between us and aviation branch. Okay. Um, and we're also one of the most sought out. Because uh, if you go back to, like, the academy and across ROTC, uh, infantry usually is number one. I, my understanding is that's number one at West Point uh, as far as the branches and MI and aviation are running, you know, neck and neck for second and third. Um, as far as what, you know, Army intelligence is like, I'll go back to my initial comment. Okay. I thought I was going to be Sean Connery coming in. Um, there was no opportunity for a martini uh, shaken, not stirred in my initial assignments as a lieutenant. But what you do at that level, at a very tactical level in the assignments, because I would always advocate if you're going to start off, you want to go down in a tactical assignment. You want to be at a division or below. And so there's a multitude of different things, whether it's human intelligence, counterintelligence, all source analysis. I mean, you're either a collector or you're doing analysis um, or as an officer, you're on the intelligence staff. Um, or you're in charge of a bunch of collectors, but it's very tactical in nature. And what we spend a lot of our time doing is what the army does. If you're not in a combat zone, then you're training. And so you're out in the field and you're, you're honing your craft. You're honing your ability to do analysis. You're practicing your briefing skills, how you understand you know, information that's incomplete. Because really what we do in the intelligence community from an analytics standpoint is you have to be very comfortable at dealing with uncertainty. Right. And uh, Sue Gordon has a great way to describe when somebody says, well, you know, would you be interested in being in the intelligence community? And then she kind of asks them a couple of open-ended questions. And, and Sue Gordon was the former deputy director for national intelligence. And so when she talks to the young people and she mentors them about being in the intelligence, she goes, do you like puzzles? You know, pause. Do you like puzzles where you don't know what the picture is that you're putting together? <laughs> pause. Do you like, pu you like puzzles where you don't know where the picture is and you don't have all the pieces? Pause. <laughs> and so that's, if you, if you're just have an insatiable appetite and curiosity, um, 
you know, we want you in this field as, as an analyst. And then for the, for those people that dedicate their career, uh, like you did, um, on the human side of that, you know, it's, they're just fascinating fields, um, to be into. And, and in some ways on the human side, when you get into clandets and stuff, it's tangentially a little James Bondish, but, um, I, I never found it quite that exciting. <laughs> no, but occasionally you might've stayed in a nice hotel. <laughs> that, that is true. That is true. <laughs> so you were talking just a, a minute ago about, uh, about that training piece, uh, and you were commanding general at Fort Huachuca. Uh, which includes the U.S. Army's Intelligence Center of Excellence, where where so much of Army intelligence training takes place. Uh, how does one get into Army intelligence, either through uh, well, let's let's focus on on enlisting into the Army and and getting into Army intel. Uh, and once in, what is that training program like for a soldier to prepare him or her to serve as an intel professor, as a military intelligence professional in the Army and and in service in the joint uh, the joint arena as well. Yeah, so you got to earn your way in. Um, what the Army does is they have a series of tests um, that will do an assessment on you. It has to do with, it's not really IQ, it's just kind of looking at your cognitive abilities and where they think you would best fit. And so it's called an ASVAB test and you get a GT score. So there's a cutoff. You have to have a certain GT score or higher to get into certain branches. And Army intelligence is one of those. And so that's, you know, you're looking for the, you know, kind of the best and brightest to come into this field. And so the fortunate thing is we're in high demand, we can be selective, and we have just some incredible, you know, talent that, uh, that comes into our ranks. When, they, when the young soldiers come out to Fort Huachuca, you know, they go through their uh, military occupational specialty um, program. So if you're going to be a counterintelligence agent, you're going to spend several months learning all things about counterintelligence. If you're going to be a human, you're going to, you're going to learn interrogation fundamentals, things like that. If you're going to be an all source analyst, you're going to learn the fundamentals of, you know, how to do strategic or how to do, you know, critical analysis, critical thinking. And so it really is just an introduction um, because, you know, you have the, the institutional army is where you get trained. The operational army is where you deploy. And there's, there's no school that's going to prepare you for everything when you get to, you know, your first, first duty station. So there is a degree of on-the-job training that's involved there. But we get them for a good chunk of time. We get them for anywhere from four to six months because of the courses and the military occupational specials we have are pretty complicated so it's not, you know, five or six weeks. We literally have them for four to six months. That is plenty of time to uh, to train somebody to do some very important work out there. So uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, who is the former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we're discussing the U.S. intelligence community. So, General Ashley, we just we just discussed a little bit about what military intelligence profession is like in the U.S. Army, which I think brings us to the bigger picture of the U.S. intelligence community as a whole. And I'd like to start that discussion with the relationships in the U.S. intelligence community and then bring us right into the Defense Intelligence Agency in a few minutes. Uh, so that said, can you give our listeners sort of a rundown on, on what, what exactly is the U.S. intelligence community? Who, who are the members? Uh, how do they coordinate with each other? What drives them towards coordination? I mean, what are the incentives that uh, that says you must coordinate with one another? Uh, and is there some sort of a central leader in the U.S. intelligence community? And we can we can kind of uh, sort of deviate uh, depending upon how you how you decide you want to answer that. Yeah. So the the IC itself, when we talk about the intelligence community, it's the services and totally it's it's eighteen agencies. I think we now officially have the Space Force and the IC, but it's it's all the service intel chiefs, it's Department of Energy, it's Homeland Security, it's state, it's Treasury. Uh, so all of those organizations, but think about their kind of a functional responsibility, right? Treasury on finance, Homeland Security on security of the homeland, um, the FBI on domestic law enforcement, uh, and then the traditionals you think about CIA, National Geospatial. So all of those have certain areas of responsibility, certain functional things they do that kind of cover the fabric 
of national security and, uh, and various things that we looked at. Um, kind of the central coordinating authority, if you will, which was created after the Intel Reform Act uh, following 9-11 was the creation of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence, which right now is uh, Avril Haines. That was created to try to provide a little bit of direction and uh, oversight to the members of the IC. Um, it's also a good forcing function to bring us together for, for coordination. Matter of fact, uh, the DNI holds a, a meeting called the XCOM, uh, which is an executive committee. So usually once a quarter, you bring all the, all the heads of the agencies together and we kind of come together around a big table, you know, all 18 of us with the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence. And we look at budget, we look at threats, we look at allocations of resources, we look at issues that we have across the enterprise. And how do we bring coherence? How do we help one another uh, to really operate truly as an enterprise? Because we all have different parts of that pie that, you know, comes together to be the national security uh, threat picture that we provide to the national leadership. Um, but the DNI, which they said has been around for almost a couple of decades now, um, is a key integral coordinator for us. Uh, but there is a natural process in a lot of the intelligence that we do. And I'll you know, we, we were talking briefly about climate change. So we pr produce things um, called like national intelligence estimates. And a lot of what we do at that level goes out for coordination amongst all these organizations. Sometimes it doesn't go to everybody depending on what it is. Um, but a lot of times everybody will take a look at it. So there are things that you will have an IC position on. So if there's a threat, a particular terrorist threat, you will go out to all the agencies that have equities in that and you'll coordinate that assessment. Sometimes people will agree or they'll say something is, you know, it's a medium threat or a high threat. So there's good uh, exchange across the agency and there's also a lot of teamwork that happens. Um, and we've seen that in the combat zones over the last uh, couple of decades. We see that play out in the embassies, in the various nations. Because if you look at the country team, there's representation from state, CIA, DIA, as we all come together, Treasury and others, uh, to solve problems on behalf of the ambassador, which is on behalf of the president, as we interface with the various nations. So it is a team of teams. And the good thing is, I think we're we are probably... Um, a great example of coordination at the interagency level that you probably don't see that level across other parts of government. Yeah. And, and it's the way we operate. We have to come together and talk and make sure that we're, you know, we're sharing as much information as we can. We're being as transparent as we can. And again, that was one of the criticisms you know, that came out of 9-11 was we had all that information, but it kind of got stovepiped away. And so part of that reform act was to create a degree of transparency. Um, although there are still some stovepipes, there is still some very sensitive information um, that gets compartmented away. Uh, and so the further we get from, nine, from a 9-11 event, and then you have leaks of intelligence, you know, one of the concerns is people start to kind of retrench back into their, their fiefdoms. And that's something that we are very leery to make sure that doesn't happen again. Yeah, I, I, uh, let me see if I can. Uh, I'm I'm going to explain my understanding of part part of what the Intel Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of uh, December 2004 tried to tried to fix, uh, and that was that stovepiping issue. And before that that bill went through to reform the intelligence community, which was really the first substantive uh, reform that we'd had in the U.S. intelligence community since the late 70s and, and 1980. But uh, part of it was that the entire system was sort of designed where each of the different agencies would go to Congress and testify about their needs for funding. And it was a competition almost amongst the different service entities and the agencies uh, to try and get that funding with the director of the Central Intelligence Agency dual hatted as the what's called the director of central intelligence. And so ahead of one of the agencies that's competing for dollars from Congress was supposed to be the fair arbiter <laughs> across all of the other agencies. And uh, that that competition really didn't drive us towards good coordination across the intelligence community to share information on, on critical national security needs. And so the Intel reform bill uh, helped to fix that by creating a fair arbiter in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, is, that a, is that a fair summary, sir? 
No, that's a great summary. And the program you're talking about is a national intelligence program or what we consider the NIP, right? And so the NIP budget, um, can't get into the details, but it's about (laughs) 60 some odd billion for 22. And then there's the military intelligence program, the MIP, uh, in the defense department, which is probably 24, 25 billion. And, And literally we do that. We come together and, you know, um, the DNI was on a, uh, another forum talking publicly as they brought that XCOM, that executive committee together and talked about the problems they need to solve. Now, is there still a little bit of competition and getting dollars for programs and people saying, I'm, you know, what I'm doing is actually going to be better at, you know, keeping America safe. Uh, it still exists. Yeah. But what you do have, as you described so well is within the DNI, you get someone that's going to be kind of arbitrating where those national intelligence program dollars go, but we do come together collectively and we try to figure out exactly, okay, what are the most important problems that we have to solve as a, an intelligence community? And then how are we going to allocate those dollars? And so there's a lot of um, cooperation in that. And we do, we do go through the budget in detail and then um, each of those agencies will go back into the DNI and say, Here's how I'm looking to spend uh, those dollars. And then you have unfunded requirements where you go, okay, if you got a little money left over at the end of the year, it would be nice to have some of that to apply for this. And we compete for those, what we call, you know, UFRs, unfunded requirements or UFRs. Uh, so let's let's talk just a little bit uh, more about the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Uh, do you think do you th- so? You you were a senior leader in the U.S. intelligence community, one of the, one of the top uh, top leaders in in the IC. Did Congress get it right with the creation uh, of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence? Uh, does the ODNI, uh, Avril Haines, as you mentioned, does she have enough power to ensure proper coordination and collaboration across the IC, or, or are there still some tweaks and reforms that Congress could make to the ODNI authorities to make us even safer as a nation? I think it's good right now, um, and a lot of it depends on personalities. Mm. Um, and like anything else, when somebody asks me for the last 36 and a half years, if there's a problem in an organization or if there's an issue to be resolved uh, or if there's a morale problem, somebody goes, you know, at the crux somewhere, there's a leadership problem in that organization. So it really is part of it is what the DNI is empowered to do. But a big part of that is the DNI as a leader in the community to bring the other organizations together to talk about what we need to accomplish. Um, and, and, and I, you know, this intuitively, there are some organizations that are more equal among equals and <laughs> right. that is part of the, part of their heritage. Yeah. And I would tell you that, um, the CIA still remains the more equal among equals. And I don't, I don't say that in a negative. I just say that as a very factual way. Yeah. So if there's something that the CIA decides that nah, we don't really want to do that, um, they have a better likelihood than anyone else of staying the course on something they want to do. Um, they have access to the president. When you think about who goes in and does the presidential daily brief every day, that is the DNI and the director of the CIA. Now you have a briefer that goes in as well, but the CIA carries a lot of weight. Um, and then I would say the number two in that, that relationship is probably the national security agency. So, you know, General Nakasone as the director of NSA, you know, from my opinion, carries more weight than he does as a four-star combatant commander, just because of the access and he has as a member of the IC. But um, so it is, it's about leadership. It is about who Avril is as a leader and working together through those issues that we may have if there's, you know, something that we disagree with as we move ahead. Um, but there are examples. There's, there's a good example. I think it was back when uh, Admiral Blair was the director of national intelligence and he kind of said, you know, the DNI rep is going to be the senior guy sitting in the embassies. It's not going to be. And he goes, and I, he goes, I'm going to pick who that is. And uh, the director of central intelligence at the time was Leon Panetta. And he said, yeah, not so fast. And so here you have a subordinate member of the IC. Now, part of that gets back into what I was talking about earlier, which is personality. Yeah. This isn't your average director of central intelligence, right? No. <laughs> in, in, in Leon Panetta. This is a former chief of staff of the White House, um, you know, a, an individual that is incredibly well-connected, well-thought-of. And so he weighs it. He, he brings a different kind of power to bear 
in that job. And so you have the DNI going, I'm going to be the, the, the you know, decider in this case, and the DCI, the D- director of central intelligence going, no, you're not. And who won out? It wasn't the DNI. No. Nope. So, so it gets, sometimes it can be personality, it can be leadership, it can be issues uh, like that. So I, you know, part of me would say, you know, the DNI needs to be able to um, literally be directive as necessary toward all the members of the IC. And I, I think that authority is there, but you're still going to get in some very unique personality dynamics. And this is one of those where, uh, you know, Director Panetta was able to march forth much to the chagrin of uh, the DNI uh, at the time, Admiral Blair. Yeah, that was that was an interesting uh, fight that took place in the USIC uh, over who was going to uh, prevail in that uh, that discussion. Uh, so, General Ashley, you brought up just a couple of minutes ago, uh, General Nakasone. Uh, and his role as uh, commander of U.S. Cyber Command and, and also the director of the National Security Agency. Uh, a, a few weeks ago, I had uh, Rear Admiral Danelle Barrett on the show. Uh, she was director of operations at Cyber Command before she took over as the director of U.S. Navy Cybersecurity, and I think she retired in 2019 or something like that. But I asked Rear Admiral Barrett whether Cyber Command and, and the NSA should be under a single leader. Uh, dual-hatted, as we say in the military. And General Nakasone is currently the commander of Cyber Command and and, uh, and director of NSA. As a fellow senior leader in the USIC, I know there's been a lot of debate about whether or not those two commands should be split apart and have two different uh, uh, heads. Uh, do you think they should be kept together under one single uh, director, or should it be two different uh, organizations with two different leaders? You know, I think, well, the the, the simple answer is, dual-headed, you know, right now as I look at that. It allows, and, you know, and, and part of it is you got to, this is one you, I think it's true with all the IC, but probably even more so in this one where you really got to get the right person in that job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and then you have some very, very unique individuals. You know, first, General Alexander, as Cybercom stood up, he was the director of NSA. And then Mike Rogers, who I've known for a long time. And then Paul Nakasone, I've known since we were majors. Uh, so you got to get the right person that can pull that off. The reason I, I would still advocate for the dual-hatted nature of it is it just allows a speed of action um, in, a, in an area that requires that kind of agility. And so for Paul to be not only the director of NSA, but the commander of Cybercom allows a speed of action and a situational awareness that it, I think it just gets more problematic when you divest the two jobs. Um, will we get there eventually? Possibly. Um, I think there was pressure at one point to kind of make that happen under Mattis's um, uh, tenure as the Secretary of Defense. But, uh, you know, when, when Paul went into the job, I, I think his feedback was, hey, let me look at it, let me assess it, and I'll come back and tell you after I've been in about 90 days. And I think where he is right now is um, let's let's continue to drive on with uh, with the dual-headed nature. I, I don't envy, you know, it's hard enough to be a COCOM commander or a director of an agency. Um, so the other part is you got to have great supporting staff. you got to have people that you trust. Yeah. Uh, that gets to leadership at that level. You know, you can't husband every decision. But the hard decisions and the ones that have to be made in a timely manner, um, you just have a speed and agility, much like what we're trying to achieve you know, with things like joint all domain command and control, we want to get, you know, be able to make decisions faster than, than the, uh, the adversaries. And with Paul having both of those hats, that allows him to move at a pace and scale that I'm not sure you can do if you split it out, at least, at least right now. So uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, former director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, and we're talking about the U.S. intelligence community. Uh, so, General, let's let's dive into the Defense Intelligence Agency specifically. Uh, I'd like our listeners to really understand what DIA does uh, for the nation and uh, for DOD. Can you give us sort of a breakdown on what is DIA's mission, how many people work there, how is the agency organized, and and which executive branch department is in charge of DIA? Yeah, so um, all of the IC is under the executive branch. So uh, I'll tell you who I work for, and it's it's not a simple answer. So my direct boss 
as the director of defense intelligence agency is the undersecretary of defense for intelligence and security. So he is a four-star equivalent undersecretary working for the SECDEF. That's my direct boss. And then right above that is secretary of defense. So that's kind of my, my next couple of tiers. But I would also tell you that um, I also work for all the combatant commands, all the functionals uh, and the geographics. Those are all my bosses because DIA is embedded in every one of those. And I'll come back to that in a minute. Um, I also work for uh, Congress because I have two oversight committees uh, that I answer to the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence and the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. So I have a number of bosses, but my really my direct two are the Undersecretary, SecDef, and uh, clearly we do a lot for the chairman. Although he's not in that chain, we do a lot for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. As far as how it's organized, uh, I'll go back to the size. We're about 17,000. Uh, is the size of the organization. We are deployed globally. So let me talk a little bit about the footprint. I'll come back to the mission statement. Uh, if you go to a combatant command and you go into the Intel Operations Center, what we call a JIOC, it's probably 75% DIA officers. Every J2, which is a military officer in all the combatant commands, is a uniformed service member. Every deputy J2 from the senior executive service is a DIA officer. If you go to the joint staff, the bulk of the manning of the joint staff J2, which works directly for the chairman, are mostly DIA officers. If you go out to all the embassies, we manage the attache program. So that's DIA. We are global. We are absolutely global. So let me tell you what the mission is, and I kind of do this in a sports analogy. <laughs> Because the mission itself is, the, the mission of the Defense Intelligence Agency is to provide intelligence on foreign militaries and to help decisively win wars. And so what does that mean to provide intelligence on foreign militaries in the operational environment? So my, my, uh, my bad sports analogy is I'm the guy that's going to go, you know, we'll use since we're uh, in football season, I'm the guy that's going to go and scout the team you're going to play. And I'm going to come back and tell you everything about them. And then I'm going to tell you everything about the city. You know, here's the good restaurants. Here's the dangerous neighborhoods. Don't go here. If you want to shop, go here. So I'm going to give you everything about that foreign military's capabilities and the operational environment. And so we, we are collecting that information every single day and archiving that data. Uh, a good example of how some of that information is leveraged. So you go back to April of 2018. Central Command is looking, because of some of the actions the Assad regime has taken, uh, that they've identified uh, a potential couple of targets they think that are involved in chemical uh, manufacturing. We don't choose the target, but they're going to come back to us in those foundational holdings of that operational environment and everything we know and say, tell me everything you know about these couple of facilities. And so we provide that. And so we give them all the background. We don't pick the target. But we tell you everything about it uh, in that environment. As far as organization, there are four, four principal directorates. There's a director for operations, and that's where the cover office is. We do debriefing. That's clandestine uh, human. It's counterintelligence. We do technical training. So that's kind of the operations directorate. There's a directorate for analysis. So think about all those all-source products. Uh, all those analysts that are working daily to provide those insights. We also have long-range analysis. We have technical intelligence. The National Center for Medical Intelligence that looks at pandemics is part of that director of analysis. We have the National Center for our Media Exploitation. So all of that computers, hard drives, phones, all that stuff that comes off of an objective when it's rated, we help do exploitation of that. Uh, we have underground facility and you know, analysis facilities, so we can look at all the tunnels in North Korea. We can look at all kinds of tunnels and things that exist, you know, and how do you defeat those? Um, we also have the um, uh, Defense Combating Terrorism Center. So there's a National Counterterrorism Center, NCTC. Well, we're the defense counterpart of that as well. So operations, analysis, then there's a director for science and technology. We have an office that does future capabilities, Mazent, which the best way to describe Mazent is if it emanates or gives off a signature or creates heat, that's Mazent. And so we kind of run the central Mazent office. We have a space counter space office uh, in which we do a lot of work in protecting and watching what's taking place that's, you know, flying around the globe every day. 
Um, open source intelligence. Uh, we have the Office of Open Source Intelligence, the Open Source Center, that helps coordinate that. And so that's three of the four. The fourth is mission support. Logistics, contracting, budget, personnel, all the things that help us run the enterprise. And since I left, what General Berry has done, and I think it's brilliant, is created an additional uh, deputy director for global integration. And so there's also under the director of analysis, there were four geographic intel centers. And they had geographic responsibilities, Middle East, Pacific, South America, uh, Europe. So what he did is he created a deputy director for global integration with the intent of, hey, am I focused on the priorities of the secretary and the national command authority? Are we focused appropriately on China? How am I, am I making resource decisions? How am I allocating analysis cap and analytic capability, collection capability? And so what he did is he took his director of analysis and created what was called a DDGI, Deputy Director for Global Integration. And he empowered that individual with tasking and resource authority. So he can reach out to those four directorates and look at how they're allocating resources, um, how they're focused, gets involved in the budget process. And so that's kind of the, the crux of what they do. So four major directorates, four geographic intel centers, kind of one Uber director that looks at all that, but a global footprint um, because we, we train all the attaches. So we're out in the embassies, we're out all the combatant commands. Um, we also even have an executive support office that sits down uh, in the Pentagon. And those are people that go out every day and brief deputy secretaries of defense, the chairman, the sec def and others uh, on what's happening. And so we get to, they get to start their day with our products, other things the IC does. So uh, we're a little bit of everywhere and uh, pretty, pretty, pretty proud of that, uh, that opportunity that we have. Well, it's, it's clearly a, a huge organization that does uh, some amazing things that has serious, real impacts for the national security of, of America and support of DOD and, and the president. Uh, you mentioned earlier that CIA is sort of more equal among equals. Uh, they are sort of the only the only intelligence uh, agency or or branch that's outside of another uh, uh, executive branch department, uh, say. And I, if you look at an organizational chart of the U.S. intelligence community, a significant part of the U.S. intelligence community is actually housed inside of uh, DOD. Uh, so there's a lot of different agencies. NSA is in is inside DOD. Uh, NGA, National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, is inside there. Uh, so CIA gets a lot of press, uh, and everybody thinks of them as you know being the agency that that runs all the spying operations. That their case officers are the only ones out there in the world uh, collecting the most important intelligence. Can you talk a little bit about about two collection disciplines that that reside within uh, DIA, and that's you said the Central Office for MASINT, Measurements and Signatures Intelligence, and and a little bit about DoD HUMINT as well. Obviously, nothing classified on either one, yeah. but uh, enough yeah. that we can sort of explain to listeners what those two collection disciplines are really all about. Yeah, it's it's kind of you know the old uh, the old joke where people say you know if I tell you I'll have to kill you. That's not really how it works. <laughs> no. It's if I tell you they'll come take me away. Right, that's exactly. Really, that's really the way it works. Yeah. Um, so you know you talk about there, there's this Hollywood mystique, right? So James Bond, um, the what is it? The uh, Impossible Mission Force. The Impossible Mission Force is under CIA. James Bond worked with CIA. What I want to be able to do is get into Hollywood and go. You just got to write a part for a DI officer. Right. You know, at some point Bond shows up in a bar. Somebody slides in the file and goes, who are you? And he just goes, or she goes, I work for DIA. Right. And, and then we're good, right? <laughs> um, but yeah, there is that mystique. So let me, let me start with the second one, which is um, spies, right? So what people, you know, euphemistically refer to as one of the, as the second oldest profession is spying. It's part of statecraft. It is something that nations do. Um, and it is old as time. And so the way that we talk about it is there, and they really call it director of operations. They don't really call it national clandestine service anymore. I think they've changed the name, but let me use that uh, because it's more illustrative of the discussion. So you have the national clandestine service, which is the CIA case officers, recruit spies, all that good stuff. And then within the defense department, you have the defense clandestine service, which recruits spies, has case officers, all that good stuff. It's a, it's a bit of a Venn diagram. And where the Venn diagram overlaps 
is where we have um, common interests and we have a lot of common interests. But the other part of that where it doesn't overlap is because of the customer base and the requirements. So when somebody says, well, if I have a national clandestine service, why do I need a defense clandestine service? It's because we're going after different requirements. I'm working for the Secretary of Defense. I'm working on defense requirements. And sometimes access to that defense requirement could be through someone that the CIA is working to recruit or, the, you know, or vice versa. And there's national, you know, things that the president needs, the national security requirements uh, that the CIA is working for. And so in some cases, CIA may have access to somebody, access to somebody who goes, this would actually be better for the Defense Department. And so there may be a handoff in that context, but it really gets into complementary capabilities, not redundant, but it's about the requirements you're going after and who you're servicing. And you kind of alluded to it, you know, the CIA being outside of the Defense Department because of what def defense, NGA, NSA are their combat support agencies on behalf of the Secretary of Defense. So when you bring all that together, then you have a good fabric by which you can look at requirements both for defense, national security. Um, and when people say, well, you know, is there a different standard? You know, is one better than the other? They all go to the same training. Right. It's the same training. And that's that's the other conversation that, you know, we try to make, make sure people understand. Yeah, so, so there's... Kind of there's there's strategic level and then there's sort of an operational and tactical level in the human world but uh i, I don't want to get into that i don't want to give away our secrets so <laughs> yeah there, there's a different part of that as well too but you know the other the other advent is with what's taking place in the phrase is ubiquitous technical surveillance to be able to operate because of the digital footprint that we leave it is it is getting more complicated and yeah. so a lot of what we're doing right now is or at least what the folks that are still pursuing those issues are figuring out how do we operate in that environment. Yeah. Um, the other one you asked me about was a national MAZIN office. And so as the director of defense intelligence agency, you chair the MAZIN board of governors. And there are just a number of different sensors. Some are terrestrial, some are airborne, some are in space that are deployed globally. And what you're looking to do is capture that energy capture those emissions. Um, in some cases, you're watching somebody that may be taking a picture of something. You're watching uh, a foreign uh, entity that may be testing uh, a weapon system. And so those emanations can be detected. They can be measured. They can be analyzed um, to help you understand capabilities of some of those weapon systems or what's taking place in space. So it's, it is um, hard science at its best. A matter of fact, understanding the emissions because some of the stuff looks like you know screwy lines, lines off of a you know a radio wave, but it is one of those things that um, is absolutely integral to uh, how we understand what our uh, what our adversaries are up to. Uh, so, sir, let's let's talk a little bit in the time we have left uh, about the world in which we now live. Uh, we've covered, I think, a pretty pretty in depth. Uh, the U.S. intelligence community, why it exists, uh, who the different organizations are, wh what uh, what they do. Uh, but the national security challenges that America faces today. You served as director of DIA as we transitioned away from a concentration on global counterterrorism operations uh, toward preparation for long-term strategic competition with our near-peer or, or even peer competitors. Uh, China is chief among those, hopefully not resulting in conflict, of course, but Certainly, we must be prepared to respond to China should that be necessary. So as a senior, deeply experienced intelligence professional, how do you see the competition with the People's Republic of China unfolding over the coming years? Yeah, so that, that is one that concerns me. Um, even though as a director of Defense Intelligence Agency, and then I'll, I'll say I have responsibility for the M and DIME and and for your listeners, you know, dime being diplomatic information, military and economic. That's how we talk about the national instruments of power. And because China is different than Russia, Russia was really a ideological and a military lead uh, during the Cold War. China is more economic, but there's a significant military buildup that's taking place. There's an informational piece of that. And there's a high level of diplomatic coercion that they they try to 
uh, leverage globally. My concern uh, is left unchecked. You know, we talk about the the liberal world order that's been in place since World War II. We don't. I, I mean, I think among like-minded Western nations, don't want to don't want to see that level of an autocratic governments starting to take hold. And I think that's kind of the risk that you you see evolving, where if China were to be more preeminent uh, in their role and the uh, really the the governments they back um, and that they support uh, are not those that hold the values that I think we we do in Western and really uh, democratic nations. They've done a lot over the course of the last uh, 20 years to kind of close the gap. If you go back to the national defense strategy and you alluded to peers and near peers, uh, the national defense strategy kind of highlights its simple problem is that our military advantage is eroding. And so part of what we have to do is figure out how do we slow that erosion, if not stop it and then expand it back in the other direction. But it's more complicated than that. It really is about how do we have a whole government, not to sound cliche-ish, um, approach that is diplomatic information, military and economic. And I think it really leads more with military, excuse me, with diplomatic and economic. Um, but there's so many things that play out from an information and disinformation standpoint in terms of how that strategy goes. Um, there's a great book that just came out um, this summer by a guy named Rush Doshi called uh, The Long Game, which is the subtitle about you know how China is looking to replace uh, the American-led order. And it talks about how they engage in blunting us in international forums. They chair four of about 15 uh, committees in the United Nations, um, how they're looking to build in their, in their uh, military capability. Uh, you've seen that in stories out of the Financial Times about ostensibly flying in hypersonic uh, glide vehicle uh, in a low uh, Earth orbit and LEO orbit. And the other part is to expand not only the military, but expand economically through Belt and Road Initiative. And so for them, they really look at um, information warfare, psychological warfare, legal warfare in the context of diplomacy and economics and information as kind of the way they lead. But to have a deterrent capability, you have to have a viable military. And so we've seen that military grow with some very asymmetric capabilities. I mean, they're, I think they're on their third carrier um, we think they'll double the number of nuclear warheads by the end of the decade. Uh, and so, and they're expanding their ability to really create an anti-access aerial denial uh, into the first island chains in the Pacific and go to the second, you know, into which would encompass Guam, if not move to the third. And so we want to kind of hold them in that first. But the really, the nuanced piece of this is really in the diplomatic side. Uh, it goes to how do you account, how do you have a, um, really a responsible rising China that gets integrated into the world order uh, and is not a disruptor. And I would tell you that both China and Russia um, over the last couple of day, decades are not necessarily looking to break the current world order, uh, but they're looking to bend it to their advantage. And they've done a pretty good job of taking advantage of it. Now, I'll even tell you, if you go back to you know the end of World War II at Bretton Woods, when this international order was set, uh, that they were not there, the Chinese nor the Russians. And so they don't necessarily subscribe to that. And we're, we're kind of an interesting inflection point right now where the unipolar moment in the 90s has passed. We're kind of in a multipolar world. And as the political scientists would tell you, if you are in a balanced or an unbalanced, if it's unbalanced, then you have an opportunity for potential conflict. And as I've watched this over the last several years, it's not as I look at it, and I think more people are coming to this uh, opinion as well, China wants to be a um, near-peer military by the middle of the century, but I think they want to be dominant by the end of the century. And so when you look at that, I think they're looking toward moving from a multipolar to potentially, at the end of the century, a unipolar uh, global environment where they are the lead. So uh, th this, that answer to my question uh, spells out so many of the things that I'm so excited uh, to be able to cover. Later, at, towards the end of this year, I'm actually going to have Dr. Stephen Walt from Harvard and uh, Dr. Uh, Ron Krebs from the University of Minnesota on uh, to discuss the concept of grand strategy. 
uh, and the fact that America really, do, do we need one or should we never have one based on what the challenges are that are, that are out there in the world? So uh, I, I will send you a note, sir, when we're going to have that show, and maybe you can <laughs> listen in and see what you think. Uh, so we're almost out of time, but I want to ask one final question. I'll give you the last word on this, uh, Lieutenant General Ashley. Um, what would you like the American people to know about DIA uh, in particular, the people who who serve there? Uh, you led a, an incredibly uh, interesting organization with so many uh, responsibilities. What do you want the people, uh, the listeners, to know about the, those who serve at, at DIA? Yeah, no, John, thanks for the opportunity to kind of close out with that thought. Um, the people that serve at DIA are your your nephews, your nieces, uh, people you went to high school, they live in your neighborhood. They are like you. They just, you know, they just have a job that has them dealing with a lot of uh, very sensitive classified issues that relate to national security. With all the potential, you know, for negative press where somebody worries about, you know, spying on Americans and things like that, that's not in their DNA. They they come to work and their why is the same why I've had for the last 36 and a half years that I was in uniform. It is how do I make the world a safer place for my kids, for my family, for those that I care about? And so there's a great book by Simon, Simon Sinek says, start with why. And he says, people don't really, they're not captured by what you do. They're captured by why you do it. And so what got me out of the bed over the last, you know, 36 and a half years, and what gets those DI officers out of bed um, is the hopes and dreams of 330 million Americans. You know, it starts with your kids. So when somebody says, you know, why do you do this? I go, well, think about a bullseye. It, the center of that bullseye are my two grandsons and my two sons and my spouse. And then it's nieces and nephews, it's coworkers. And before you know it, my why is the hopes and dreams of 330 million Americans. That's, that's what I do every day so that they can live their lives without the worry of a 9-11. You know, they can go to a ball game, they can do whatever they want to do um, and just prosper and have a good time and be with the people that they love. That's what DI employees do. Um, it's about building trust in the nation, but it is about making sure that they can keep this experiment that we call, call you know, the caring forward to another generation and they, they pour their hearts into it every day. So thank you, sir, for that. Uh, we, unfortunately, folks, we've come to the end of another edition of National Security This Week. Uh, Lieutenant General Robert Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today and educating us on the U.S. intelligence community. And, and I will tell our listening audience, uh, they can't see you. You and I are on Zoom, but uh, you were representing today wearing your Vikings shirt. Uh, we, we deeply appreciate that, uh, even though you're down there in Wake Forest uh, neighborhood. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, sir, thank you very much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. John, thanks. It's been a pleasure, and uh, thanks for the opportunity to kind of share the story about the intelligence community. Yeah. Uh, so, folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. We'd love your feedback on National Security This Week here at KYMN Radio. So please take a few minutes to contact us and let us know how we're doing. Have a great week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly show looking into issues of American national security with the host, John Olson. Listen every Wednesday at 9 a.m. for National Security This Week.